Welcome to Joining the Dots, brought to you by Hanover Communications. I'm Gitta Harry. In this series of podcasts, I have lunch with senior industry shapers to explore their views on leadership, reputation, and what it takes to succeed in business. Joining me today is Mark Neal, founder and CEO of Mountain Warehouse. Mark read physics at Oxford and tried selling rollerblades, greeting cards and toys before founding Mountain Warehouse as a single shop in Swindon. The firm now has more than 200 branches across the world and sales are booming. Mark Neal, here we are around the corner from your office. You've created quite an empire, we'll come back to that, but Mountain Warehouse was not the first idea nor the first attempt at creating something, was it? There were a few others first. Uh, yeah, this was my fourth attempt at starting a retail business. Originally I did a physics degree at Oxford. I got a job as a strategy consultant in the city, but I always wanted to have my own business. And uh, initially in 1994, when I was 25, I chucked in my job and set up a shop selling rollerblades. And uh, rollerblades at the time were pretty fashionable, and over a relatively short period of time I managed to get up to five shops selling rollerblades. But I was a bit worried as to how long they were going to last, and I ended up selling them for £40,000, which was a lot of money to me at the time, and uh, moved on to toys. I tried to set up a chain of educational toy shops. Uh, it was called Bright Sparks. I was very enthusiastic about it. And unfortunately, I lost 20 of my £40,000 because uh, I was hoping people would want to buy educational toys and it seems that the market was more aligned with people buying Barbie and, and other bits of plastic and my venture was not that successful. I then had a brief stint uh, with a shop selling greetings cards lasted about a year, it was okay, but I only had a short-term lease and then we ended up getting kicked out of the property until I stumbled on this uh, business opportunity. So the first Mountain Warehouse shop opened in 1997, so three years after I initially chucked in my job and it has um, grown and developed ever since then. Yeah, and how big is it now? You're in Canada, you're in New Zealand, and lots of other places. Yeah, so right now we have 340 shops in nine countries. About 240 of the shops are in the UK, and about 100 are outside the UK. Biggest international markets are Canada, Germany, Poland. We're also in the US, uh, and at the end of last year, we opened our first shops in, in New Zealand. We also have a really big online business, about 25% of our sales, and our total turnover, it's, it's our year-end uh, next week, actually, and our total turnover this year is just over 250 million. Had you ever imagined you'd be that successful? I don't, I don't know. Um, I, I never uh, really set out with a plan that was that far into the future. It's, it's since the first Mountain Warehouse shop opened, you know, it's coming up to 22 years now. One of my philosophies, I'm not necessarily answering your question exactly here, is one of my philosophies is if you do something for a very long time, and if you make incremental improvements each season, you know, let's make this season's collection of outdoor wear better than last season's, and let's start making next season's better than this one, then over a long, long period, those, those gains accumulate, 
and you know I've been doing it for 22 years now, no plans of, uh, of stopping, then it becomes quite big. How important is it to think differently to everyone else, to almost think outside the box, to, to spot something that eludes others? I would say that that's not our strength. Our strength has been, you know, I don't think we've invented a new category as such. Um, I think we've just done it better value for money with our own brand products, so with better margins and, and, and lower prices for the customer, and in a, possibly a different type of location. So, we, we, you know, we're in market towns and county towns all, all over the UK. I think the, the, the biggest difference is... Um, that all of our competitors, if you think about the competitive brands, the well-known ones like the North Face and Columbia and Berghaus and uh, Patagonia and, and, and you could go on and on and on, I mean, nearly all of them have got a picture of a bloke with an ice axe hanging off a glacier and we don't do that. We're going after a slightly older, more family-focused customer who typically might be walking the dog. And so have we done anything completely transformational, new, different? Uh, no, we've sort of evolved it into this over, over a long period and found a, a niche, niche probably not the right word because it's a very big part of the market and a much less crowded part of the market than, than where the more high-end aspirational brands might be and it seems to have worked. You had a physics degree from Oxford, you're already employed in strategy. You could have had a much easier life that would have been pretty comfortable if you hadn't been compelled, if that's the right word, to sort of try and build your own business. Yeah, I, I think that's that might be the case. I don't know if easier is actually the right word. I think a lot of the friends we have, the people we know working in those professional services businesses are working a pretty strenuous uh, long hours not that much holiday don't see their families very much and I think that you know where we've evolved the business to I, I, I take my daughter to school most mornings I am home by half past six most nights yeah, I do quite a lot of travel for business but I enjoy that um, but I'm not in a relentless sort of white collar accounting or legal job where we see lots of, um, of people we know and, and people who, who help us in the business who are, who are working much more strenuously uh, than us. And I think that um, the important thing in that regard from my side was that I did it when I was 25. At that point I was living in a shared house with three mates in Battersea. I didn't have a wife and a daughter and a mortgage and a, and a Volvo and a cat and a dog to worry about. I simply had to worry about being able to pay the rent on my shared house at the end of the month each, each month. And it's completely different in that situation than if you have got all those responsibilities. And so, um, you know, by checking my job, I knew I could go back and get my job back if it didn't work. I was, um, and it, so in, in many ways it wasn't such a big risk, but it was a really important to do it then rather than to wait. And, and, and the other thing about that is, of course, you know, as you crawl up the corporate ladder and get more and more paid, then the risk um, you know, becomes even even higher. And, and I think a lot of my friends in those early days were, um, you know, doing jobs at Goldman Sachs and 
you know, working their way up the career ladder, making a lot, lot more money than I was in my late twenties and early thirties. But you know, over the long run, I think the approach I've taken has, you know, ultimately been at least as successful. Is there something in uh, an entrepreneur that's innate almost that you you want to create something, you want to build something, you want to employ people, you want to pursue opportunities? Is there something there that? makes a, an entrepreneur stand out? Yeah, I think there's there's definitely, it's hard to put your finger on it, but there's definitely a type of person who can start with a blank sheet of paper, and it actually relishes starting with a blank sheet of paper, and essentially making it up as you go along, rather than moving into an established role in an established situation or business and, um, and making the most of that. I mean, starting from nothing takes a different type of person, I think. What about leadership? Because if you build, as you have, quite an empire, you've got to carry people with you, you've got to persuade people to invest in you, believe in you, join your team. It's the, what is the essence of that? And has that changed over the last I think that the need, you know, clearly, as, as our business has got bigger, then, then what the sort of people we need to attract and recruit and retain, and retain, you know, has changed as well. And we're still in a in a process there, I would say. But certain people, I think, are attracted to fast-growing founder-led businesses and it's definitely not for everyone you know this sort of business is a bit more chaotic we uh, try things we change our minds if things aren't working it's not as corporate as um, as, as some other places although it's getting more corporate as you know we've now got 3,000 staff um, throughout the business and 250 people in the office uh, has it changed I think that the the people who are graduating from university now and coming in at the lower level have pretty high expectations of what is the business going to do for me, whereas maybe a generation ago there was a bit more of a focus on what am I going to be able to do for the business to move on my career, and that is an interesting change, but I think it's not unique in, in noticing that. And in the answer to what can the business do for me, has it gone way beyond the paycheck? They now care about how ethical the business is, where it sources its its materials, where it gets its work done, what is the gender pay gap if there is one, how many women are on the boards, how diverse it is. What, you know, it, it seems to be getting a lot more complicated in virtually every business these days. Yeah, I, I, I think it is. But, but every one of those uh, things that you just mentioned is, is clearly critically important and um, actually I'm getting a, as much of as much feedback on, on that stuff from my 14 year old daughter as I am uh, from from other directions but the, but I think that you know we've all got to move with the times and uh, the fact that these things are, are important to to people is, is a good thing does that change the kind of person you hire whereas in the past if somebody was a brilliant money man and probably was a money man he could be the perfect CFO but now you need a CFO who who can talk the talk and hold the vision and hold the room and not offend anyone. 
Yeah, you'd still like to think he's got a bit of a way with money, though, wouldn't you? <laughs> <laughs> Realistically. Or all uh, else is academic. <laughs> I think um, it's, just, it's a type of person still who wants to work in, in this type of company. And we, and we try and find, and it's not entirely easy, people who have got two main traits. One is commercial understanding of what, uh, you know, what are we trying to do? And fundamentally, what, what we are trying to do is we are trying to sell more outdoor product than we sold last year without spending too much money. And a lot of people seem to come and, and they think that they've joined the business so that they can have meetings and do presentations. And, and of course there are meetings and presentations as part of it, but the underlying ethos is that we are trying to sell more outdoor gear each year. And, and, and finding people who, who get that is, it may, it may sound obvious, but it's actually slightly more difficult than, than you would think. And then the other thing is we're trying to find people who can get stuff done. And actually, you know, being able to take a bit of initiative, find your way through problems and, and achieve results, again, is harder than um, than you might think. But all these, let's call them reputational issues, are they, um, are they sometimes an annoying distraction from the business of selling more outdoor gear? Have they, you know, in the old days they were less prevalent, they loomed less large perhaps, or are they... I don't know, I mean, I, I think we are selling our products direct to the public mm-hmm. uh, and having a strong positive well-regarded reputation is gonna fundamentally help us sell more outdoor gear so 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 to be honest it's it's probably a um, quite an important um, factor that that is, that is a positive because reputation everybody appreciates it when it's gone they suddenly realize people have been in companies that have you know suffered a scandal or whatever getting the reputation back is a costly lengthy, painful process and often it doesn't work. But do you think enough business leaders appreciate when the going is good how critical this is and to safeguard what you have if you have a good reputation for you? What um, I'm in a constant state of paranoia about Gitto is uh, that every time there's a positive news story about our financial results in the in the press, uh, it has some kind of play on the name of the company. So, Mountain Warehouse scales new heights. Mountain Warehouse <laughs> reaches new peaks. Um, Mountain Warehouse climbs new uh, new peaks. That kind of thing. Uh, and, and there's always one of those uh, headlines. And of course, that works. There's a danger that, that what works, goes that up. works both ways. Mountain <laughs> Warehouse going downhill. Uh, off the cliff and all that. Yeah, yeah and, and so on. So um, that is something that you know I'm very uh, cognizant of and uh, trying to avoid at all costs. What is the balance with something like this between processes, procedures, governance, compliance, all that, and culture? And do you see culture as you know some business leader once memorably described it as something we do when when nobody's looking? Uh, yeah, I, I mean I think you know you can have all the governance you like, but if you haven't got a business then there's not much point. So you've got to start fundamentally with the business, with being able to sell stuff for more than you pay for it, and with a culture that enables um, you to do that and, and to uh, you know, go back to the beginning, to, to do it better than you were doing it six months ago, and, and that in six months' time, hope that you're doing it better than you're doing it now. And, and then um, you obviously, particularly as we get bigger, more international, then we have to layer on the governance and the uh, 
and, and so on as well at the same time. Final thought, if there's a 25-year-old listening with a decent degree from a good university, perhaps have been tapped up by you know Goldman Sachs or a law firm or a strategy firm, but they have this dream to start their own business and to build something over many years. What would your advice be to them? Uh, well, my advice would, would the out question be to do it. I, I think the 25 thing is quite a good time because I think after you... Well, first of all, I, I, I'm not 100% in favour of everybody needing to graduate. And I think some of the best people we've got working for us actually don't have a degree so I do not subscribe to the fact that, that everybody needs to go to university but I do think there's something to be said for getting some experience some network uh, something to fall back on if it doesn't work which is what I had but then to do it to take the plunge before it's too late so before you're trapped in a conveyor belt career but after you've learnt enough to know that you can go back and get on that conveyor belt if you need to. Mark Neal, thank you very much. Thank you. You've been listening to Hanover Brand Rep, Joining the Dots, brought to you by Hanover Communications. It was presented by me, Gitahari, and produced by Simon Barnard. Thanks for listening.